Well, I am glad this morning I did not have to use the accessibility ramp. I went skiing yesterday for the first time in 32 years. <laughs> and I didn't know how that was going to go because I had to chase down my, my, uh, my nine-year-old son who figures the only way down the hill is to just, you know, do the pizza every once in a while. But other than that, just straight down the hill. And so we went down almost all the runs, actually, other than a few of the black diamonds. We avoided some of those, but... It was only his third time skiing. I'm like, he's kamikaze man. Anyway, I lived. There's a few wipeouts. There is video. I will not post it. Uh, great to be here this morning. And uh, we are in Numbers chapter 21 this morning as we've been working our way through uh, the, the Pentateuch, through, through, um, through the story of God's people and how God has brought his people out of Egypt. He has set them free. He has delivered them. He has rescued them. He has walked with them. He has promised his ongoing presence with them. He, he has given them his word that they can live by. And they've had some ups and downs and they've had some difficulties along the way. They have been rebellious. They have not listened to his word. God has had to discipline them. Things have gone wrong over and over again, and we get to the last one today, at least in the wilderness. Numbers chapter 21, the, the, the kind of the background setting to this. Uh, we saw this last week in Numbers chapter 20. Aaron has now died, the, the, the man who was set up as their, as their high priest. They've just won a decisive victory over one kingdom in the first few verses of, of uh, Numbers chapter 21. And now again, they're having to kind of travel a bit of a long way around to get to where they're going. And they're impatient and tired. And one more time, they're complaining. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of the land of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, um, this is a bit of a bizarre story, and so, Lord, help us to understand it. It's, is this not just a weird story? It's a little odd. We wonder, Moses, what, why did you make a metal snake? Is this not like in contravention of, like, commandment number one, don't make anything to represent God, anything that crawls on... It seems like a bit of a contradiction. God... And, you know, God could have healed everyone, right? He could have removed the snakes. 
That's what they asked. Oh, God, can you take these snakes away? Nope. Going to leave the snakes. Interesting. Very interesting story. God chooses to do things differently. Well, let's take a look at the story as it is, and we'll, we'll encounter some of these questions, deal with some of those questions along the way. The first thing we notice, look at, look at verse 5 again. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? There is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now, is this different than any other time they've complained? Not really, right? No food, no water, this is why we complain. But it is interesting that this... Usually they just complain to Moses. But now they're actually including the Lord in this. They spoke against God and against Moses. We just go back to that last chapter. It says, you know, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. Now they're, uh, they're setting it up. It's kind of upping the ante here. Now they're, they're against God himself. Exodus 17 was the first time we saw this happen. This is actually the last time in the, in the story of the Exodus before they enter the promised land that this kind of situation happens. This is the last complaint. But look at, look at, their, look at the, what, what are they doing here? The, the, the Lord's people sin despite his gracious provision. Now, since Exodus chapter 17, God has been providing for them over and over and over again. He has been giving them food every day. He has provided water on multiple occasions. The Lord's people sin despite his gracious provision. Look at their evaluation. We loathe this worthless food. This is what God has provided for them. To, to, to loathe, the Hebrew word here denotes a deep emotional reaction that desires, uh, that, that is repulsed by or desires the destruction of something. They really want to be done with this manna stuff. Kind of like we all want to be done with this, right? This, this thing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Imagine that for 40 years. We're almost out of them. We're not ordering anymore. <laughs> I think they're almost, are, are they almost gone, Peter? Did we get rid of? And, we got enough for second service? Yeah, and, and, then, and then we're pretty close to done. Awesome. Now, you know, we ordered that from somebody. God didn't miraculously provide that, so I can cast disparity on that little cracker wafer of whatever that is. Anyway, we loathe this worthless food. This is the only time this word occurs in the Old Testament, but it's related to some other words, kind of comes out of some other words. that means cursed, vile, and detestable. And this is what they're saying about what God has provided for them. We just want to be done with this stuff. It is cursed. This is, was God's blessing for the people. It is the opposite. And this is their evaluation of God's gracious 
provision. And so before we even consider the snakes or the bronze serpent, we need to come to terms with the why behind God's judgment in this situation. It's about the sin problem of the people. Throughout the gospel project, we hit these essential doctrines, and, and the one today we hit is called sin as selfishness. Listen to this. When we sin, we are acting out of a selfish attitude and mindset that assumes our action will lead us to more happiness than if we were to obey God. Because sin is manifested in our tendency to be curved inward towards ourselves, it is the opposite of love. Love looks outwardly to place others before oneself, operating from the mindset that others are more important. Philippians 2.3 When sin... Where sin selfishly seeks personal gratification and happiness, love works for the joy of others in the hope of making others happy in God. Sin, uh, humanity turned in on itself. I think Augustine uh, said that, had that definition that it is just an absolute self-centeredness. If we look in Galatians, the fruit of the sinful nature, we see it over and over. It's all about me. It's all about what, what I get out of it. It's all about being self-fulfilled. The Lord's people sin, despite his gracious provision. How often has God provided for his people and proved his faithfulness? And what the sin nature does, not, not, not our sinful actions, but just the sin nature itself, it always asks, what's in it for me? It demands to be the judge and jury of what is best for me, and, and, and whatever God provides, I get to judge it. And this is what the people have done here. They have judged God's gracious provision as something to be repulsed by, and is worthless. The sinful nature neglects and forgets God's goodness and his leading to a better way of living because God is leading them to this place of beauty and abundance. But they don't want it. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt? They don't want God's tomorrow. They want yesterday's Egypt. The sinful nature rejects the goodness of God. It squashes faith and gratitude. The sinful nature robs us of joyful living and fosters complaining hearts. And that's what we see manifest in these people. So why does God respond so, so that he sends these snakes amongst the people and they get bitten and many die because they have sinned deeply? But the Lord's, through this, the Lord's people are disciplined. And this discipline is to draw them toward repentance. Verse 6 to 7, the first half of verse 7. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. So what's with the snakes? Why is it always snakes? There, I, I found all of the older people who watched Indiana Jones. 
You know, God's justice and correction takes many forms. There's no cookie-cutter journey with God. There's, there's no why offered in the text. Why snakes? And it's a bit of a distraction then, and some have tried to go, well, what kind of snakes were they, and where did they live, and da-da-da-da-da. You know, it's kind of a bit of a distraction to go down that road. It's not really the point of the passage, so why go there? The text tells us these are fiery serpents. Likely that's the effect of, of the venom as it hits your body, causes inflammation and pain, and that many people died from these bites. And it's at this point that they realize they have sinned. You know, because people will only change when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of embracing change. And these people were going through a painful time. These bites were inflamed and they were causing a lot of people to die. Notice something very different is happening in this last complaining conflict story. Normally what happens? They come and they complain to Moses and Moses goes and intercedes for the people and God provides a solution. What happens here is that Moses doesn't intercede right away the people actually take initiative. They come to Moses and say, we have sinned and we have spoken against the Lord and against you. They have finally, for once, owned their part of the problem. It may take 40 years, but sometimes we get it in the end, right? Moses doesn't go to God in response to the problem. The people come to him, and for once they take initiative. They admit that they need God. They admit that they can't deal with this. Pray to the Lord that he may take the serpents from us. They know that they have been in the wrong. The Lord's people are disciplined, and it draws them toward repentance. They turn, and they say this this is because we have walked away from God and we need to turn back to him. Pray for us. Hebrews chapter 12, 4 to 11, no discipline is pleasant at the time. And we, we respected our fathers who, you know, even though they were fallen, they disciplined us for a good. How much more so when the Lord disciplines us? First, it proves that we are his children. Discipline from God isn't because he's just mad at you and wants to get rid of you. It's because he loves you and wants you to draw you back into proper relationship with himself. The, the, the discipline that God does for us is to draw us back into relationship. Listen to this. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten this exhortation that addresses you as sons, as children? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as a son. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which, you in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. 
Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline, experiencing the discipline of God, is evidence that you're part of the family. That's hard to swallow sometimes, right? You know, isn't God a God of love and he just lets us get away with everything we want? No. It's very interesting to see what God does and doesn't do in this situation in Numbers 21 as well. So the Lord's people are disciplined. It draws them towards repentance. It has that result. They come and they repent. They say, we've sinned against the Lord and against you. So notice what happens next, verse, uh, this last half of verse 7 to the, to the end of verse 9. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at it, at the bronze serpent, and live. Isn't God's response fascinating and almost a bit confusing? God God answers and he responds to the pleas of the people, kind of, but not really. What did they want? No more snakes. Get rid of the snakes. What does God do? Here's, here's a way to be healed from your snake bites if and when it bites you again. The snakes stay. Really? <laughs> hmm. God provides a way of being healed, but it requires faith during an ongoing danger and a threat. The snakes are not removed. People would still be bitten. The pain was ongoing in their life. I think what's happening here is that ongoing and active faith was required for the people to experience the healing of God. God does not heal or rescue people simply because they have a condition. He heals and rescues people who admit that they are sick and broken and sinful and who will look to him for the healing, restoration, and forgiveness they need. And nor does God heal, restore, or forgive just so we can have an easy life. God's work in our lives to heal us, restore us, to forgive us are for his glory and our good. God does save us from our sin, but he saves us for his glory. And what God, I think, is doing in this passage is he's drawing people out of themselves and to look to him of of, you know, if, if you're going to avoid getting bitten by a snake, where do you have to look? Down. Snakes are on the ground. To be healed, where do you got to look? Up. And that's important. 
Because so many times we keep our eyes on the things that are a problem. We keep our eyes on our sins and our sickness, and we don't look up. They had to take their eyes off the things that threatened them in order to look to the source of healing. If we fix our eyes on Jesus, we may still get bitten, but there is healing and freedom. John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and this story comes up in the conversation. It doesn't come up much in the New Testament, but it does at this point. Jesus simply states that his crucifixion is the fulfillment of this passage. Jesus said to Nicodemus, John chapter 3, 14 to 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And what's the next sentence? For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it through him. John 3, 16 and 17. The Lord's people are disciplined, drawing them towards repentance, and the Lord's prophet intercedes, prompting and providing the means of healing, and Jesus has done this and more so because he sets us free from the sin that so easily entangles and the things that drag us down and destroy our lives. These people could be set free from the venom of a snake somehow, however that worked, but God has set us free from the venom of sin in Jesus Christ when we look to him at the cross. But we have to lift our eyes and believe that what he has provided for us is what we actually need. What, what proof would people have? How weird would this be for people who have prayed, Lord, just take these snakes away from us. The snakes are the problem, and the Lord provides instead this snake on a pole that you have to look at. Wow. That takes a lot of faith to say, I, you know, I've been bitten. My leg is inflamed. My, my foot is swelling. I'm about to die. I can feel it. I have to look and believe that what God has provided actually is powerful. And it's the provision of God. It's not the snake on a pole. That does nothing. That's just a piece of metal. It is the God who provides that sets us free. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. At the end of John's gospel, the, Jesus has to meet with Thomas and Thomas says, unless I see it and as, unless I touch it and stick my hand in his side, I won't believe. And Jesus comes to him and he says, do it then. And Thomas says, my Lord, and my God. And, and Jesus says, you, you, you now believe because you've seen me. Blessed, more blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Like Jesus has just said that for those of us that have come to faith in Jesus Christ, we've never seen him. We're more blessed than Thomas who walked with him, who touched him. How much more blessed are we? Wow. Whoever believes in him will have eternal 
life. And the three questions we normally go through, the head, heart, hands questions, are on your bulletin insert, and I'm just going to leave you with those to ponder for this week. But what I want to ask is just one question of you this week, is are you fixing your eyes on Jesus? Has the pain in your life and the brokenness of your relationships, the woundedness of your soul driven you to look to him, or are you still trying to fix it on your own? Now, I'm not saying that praying at the end of the service and giving it to God is going to miraculously make life easy and remove the pain. The snakes might still be there. A life and God's activity in our lives is much more complicated Facing our pain and our shame and our brokenness is a process. But the people of God here had to admit, first of all, their sinful acts against God, and then they had to trust in God's provision for them. Have you come to the place where you can admit that you cannot fix the pain in your life? And are you ready to take a deeper journey with God through that pain and toward God? You know, people didn't need the snake unless they were bitten. Unless there was venom flowing through their veins. Then they had to look at it. Then they had to turn their eyes to what God had provided for them. And then they could live. Other than that, they would die. We all have the venom of sin flowing through our veins. And only a look to Jesus and the cross will free us from certain death. The people of Israel were dying and they were suffering and they finally cried out to God, we have sinned against the Lord. They admitted that their sin was the source of their suffering. They owned their pain and their sin. They didn't blame God. They didn't blame Moses. They admitted they were wrong. They knew they needed God's work. They knew they were powerless to deal with the situation. And that's where healing and restoration and forgiveness start. When we admit that we're powerless on our own to deal with the situations and the pain in our life and the sin that drags us down, that's where it starts. Lord, help us to turn our eyes toward you. Lord, whatever we're going through in our lives, the pain of loss, the emptiness of relationships gone sour, just the continual struggle against the sinful nature. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you, the author and the finisher of our faith. Help us to throw off the sin that so easily entangles and those things that just wrap us up and drag us down. Help us to lift our eyes off of the things of this world and set our eyes on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And so, Lord, open our eyes. Help us to look up. And look to you for our source of healing, 
of restoration and of forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.